goat out into the wilderness. So after that, then we see the emphasis on personal holiness. In other words, the people of God had been forgiven as a result of God's grace and because of that atonement. And now from chapters 17 to 26, the emphasis is upon their personal holiness, the way they are to conduct themselves as God's special people. So in chapter 17, we saw the emphasis on blood. In chapter 18, we saw the laws concerning sexual morality. And here in chapter 9, we have a mingling of both moral and ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws, for the most part, are in the latter half of the chapter, from 19 to the end of the chapter. So tonight, our focus is on verses 9, 9 to 18, as last week we looked at verses 1 to 8. But I do want to read beginning in chapter 19 at verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and keep my Sabbaths, and I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols, nor make for yourselves molded gods. I am the Lord your God. And if you offer a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord, you shall offer it of your own free will. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it, and on the next day. And if any remains until the third day, it shall be burned in the fire. And if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an abomination. It shall not be accepted. Therefore, everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned the hallowed offering of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not cheat your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Amen. Well, last week, as I said, we saw the emphasis on religious observances in verses 1 to 8. So we have a brief introduction to the section, which we'll look at in, a, in just a moment in verses 1 to 2a, and then a list of religious observances. Notice the pursuit of holiness in verse 2b. Now, holiness means moral purity, but the fundamental or the root meaning of holiness is to be set apart. Sanctification has the idea of being set apart from others, from, from sin and wickedness. And here specifically, God mandates to the children of Israel that they be set apart from the heathen nations around them. That's why many of the, the ceremonial laws may seem a bit arbitrary to us in terms of eating certain things, but uh, wearing certain things, but they were supposed to be distinguished and distinct from those heathen around them. I think the idea being is that if you participate in what, in what they eat and you participate in what they wear, it won't be long before you participate in what they worship. 
And so God wanted, to them, wanted them to be a separate people, and that's the foundational command there in verse 2b. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Notice then the reverence for parents foundational to civil society, foundational to any sort of, of an of a, of a orderly society. If there is no uh, uh, functioning home, if there is no reverence for parents, there's not going to be any decency in society. God establishes that. And notice, every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. It's not simply the father, but it's the mother and the father. And then next you have the observance of the Sabbath. It was a central command in terms of the, the, the national identity of Israel. And then the prohibition of idolatry in verse 4, fundamental again to society and to the order and discipline in that time frame. You're not supposed to go after the gods of the Egyptians, the, the, the nation that you just left. And you're certainly not supposed to pursue the, the gods of the Canaanites in the land that I am giving to you. And then the last part there is the consumption of sacrifice sacrificial meat. Again, ceremonial mixed in with some, with some moral law there. But just a reminder in terms of the introduction, look back in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them. And then look at the last part of verse 18. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So God here is the one commanding the nation of Israel on how they are to function. This isn't the civil state. I think sometimes we read passages like this and we think, well, Trudeau should command us to love one another. No, this was a theocratic nation. God is directly governing these people. It's by his word, by his prophets, through his priests. Later it will be through the king that is uh, seated upon the throne of Yahweh himself. So the Lord is commanding these things. It's not the government. The government is not to command us to love or who we aren't supposed to hate and all that sort of thing. The government is simply to uh, uh, enforce law. It's God who deals with the heart, and that's one of the things we ought to appreciate in a passage like this. This is regulation for the covenant community in the land that God is giving them. Now, I'm not suggesting we can't learn anything in our new covenant setting. Obviously, as the commu uh, covenant community of the people of God, we should live like this toward one another. We should love one another. We should care for one another. And as far as general society goes, of course, love your fellows. But we don't have the government enforcing who we love and who we can't love and all that sort of thing. God deals with the heart. In Romans 13, the civil magistrate is to function as an avenger of God's wrath upon those who engage in evil works. Not in evil thoughts, not in you know, crimes of the mind, but they're to engage in restricting and prohibiting outward acts of lawlessness. They're not supposed to police the mind. And so as we move down this pathway where it does seem that that's a purview that government wants to take on, they don't have that right under God. I like Machen. He says, the civil government is not intended to produce blessedness or happiness, but intended to prevent blessedness or happiness from being interfered with by wicked men. Their job is not to produce blessedness or happiness, but they are simply there to prohibit blessedness or happiness being interfered with by wicked men. I think that's a very crucial and important distinction. 
He goes on to say, the state exists for the repression of evildoers and the protection of individual liberty. And certainly, that's how it seemed to have functioned in Old Covenant Israel. You didn't have a massive bureaucracy. You had judges, you had higher courts, you had all of that to be sure, but it wasn't this multi-tentacled sort of a situation where they were in every jot and tittle of person's lives. God was because he's God. The civil state isn't because they're not God. So never forget that. The Lord spoke to Moses to legislate how the covenant community was to function in the land that God was giving them. Then one other thing by way of introduction. Notice that last statement again in verse 18. I think this sort of summarizes the whole section. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now what is a neighbor? It's good for us to define that. Uh, a commentator named Stuart commenting on the ninth commandment. Remember, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. I think he gives a good statement concerning what a neighbor is. He says, this is the first commandment to employ the word neighbor in its general juridical sense of anyone else you happen to come into contact with rather than the more narrow sense of someone living near you. In laws and formal rules, neighbor has nothing to do with proximity or familiarity. Your neighbor connotes any other human being you may have dealings with, actually or potentially. I think that's a good way to understand that. Well, it wasn't my next door neighbor, so I really didn't have to love him. That's not the point. The point is, as he says, anybody you may have dealings with, actually or potentially. So keep that in mind as we move through this particular section. Now in verses 9 to 18, as I said, I think 18b summarizes the entire section. The emphasis is on neighborly love. And notice first we have gleaning laws in verses 9 and 10. So God is pro-farming, God is pro-agriculture, God is pro-capitalism. In fact, the Eighth Commandment secures that for us. You shall not steal. God says it's okay for you to have private property. It's okay for you to, you know, dig your own well. It's okay for you to have your own house. It's okay for you to have your own possessions. But you should be charitable as well. And again, this isn't the state mandating it. This is God telling you that you need to be charitable. In other words, it's not just your profits. It's not just your increase. It's not just your goods that you should be concerned about, but you should be concerned about others as well. Last Sunday, or this past Sunday, I read from 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we see the same principle there. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, at verse 17, Paul tells Timothy to have a Bible study with the rich people. And in that Bible study with the rich people, Timothy is not to tell them to divest themselves of their riches. Go throw all your money in a lake, go give it to you know, poor people, and just sell everything and, and, and follow Jesus. That's not what he says. He says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. And then turn back just a little bit to Ephesians 5. I'm sorry, Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, we have the emphasis on walking as new men and women in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he deals with some specific situations, concrete application of God's law in chapter 4. And if you notice specifically at verse 27, or I'm sorry, verse 28, let him who stole 
steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. So it's good for us to labor. It's good for us to secure property. It's good for us to have those things that God in his grace has given to us. As long as, you know, they don't become an idol, they become, they don't become that thing that dominates our attention and our affection. There needs to be a charitable aspect in our hearts. And that's what Leviticus 19 verses 9 and 10 tell us. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap your, the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor, you, or, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. In other words, in all of your business pursuits and all of your capitalistic enterprise and all of your ventures where you increase your, your holdings and your benefit and all that sort of thing, make sure you don't forget the poor. Make sure you don't forget those people in the land that have need and leave them a bit so that they too can glean. Now the obvious example or the obvious illustration of this is in the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 2. Remember Boaz gives the order with reference to his, his uh, uh, farm guys. He says, let, let things fall. Let her have access to that. She gleaned so that she could prosper and so she could give it to her mother-in-law. So there is to be a benevolence and a charity built into the covenant community. And again, not the civil state telling you what you must do with your money, but God telling you what you must do with your money because he has the right to command that. Now notice next, we have these other community laws in verses 11 to 18. The first is the prohibition of theft. Now this is the seventh commandment. So 11a says, you shall not steal. The seventh commandment is given in Exodus 20 at verse 15 and then repeated in Deuteronomy 5.19. Now it's comprehensive. Remember, you've got the general principle stated in the moral law in the Ten Commandments and then you see concrete applications in other parts of the law. You see those concrete applications in the book of Proverbs, for instance. You see the, the concrete applications in the prophets. When the prophets come to upbraid the children of Israel for their covenant unfaithfulness, they take those general principles and then they apply them specifically to the people of Israel. You see the same emphasis in the New Testament. You see Paul tell us not to steal any longer, but rather go out and get a job and make enough so that you can give it to other people. Well, at the very center of that command is that, that eighth word, we're not supposed to steal. So in terms of theft, we have the act of burglary. You see that in Exodus chapter 22, verses 2 and 3. That's entering a dwelling with the intent to steal. Now as you move through, or as we move through this, this is the concrete application of what it looks like to love one another. Love one another doesn't mean hand everybody flowers. It doesn't mean take everybody for coffee. It means don't break God's law with reference to that particular individual. Now, that doesn't seem as romantic as, you know, a cup of coffee or flowers, but this is the concrete application of God's law. Turn to Romans chapter 13 just to see that the new covenant, the same principle holds. How do I know what it is to love my fellow churchmen? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 13, specifically at verse 8. He says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Again, that doesn't seem very romantic. You mean there's no flowers, there's no chocolates, there's, there's no steak dinner at the keg? You mean I can actually love my neighbor without having done all those things? Yeah, we don't steal his stuff, we don't take his wife when you don't hurt him, when you don't kill him. That's the emphasis here in the passage. And I'm not suggesting you can't take people out for a steak dinner at the keg. I'm not suggesting you can't give flowers and, and coffee and all that sort of thing. But, but love is the concrete application of obedience to God's holy law. So the act of burglaring is the entering a dwelling with the intent to steal. There's the act of robbery. Again, throughout the Pentateuch and other portions of Scripture, we see that. Robbery is taking someone, uh, something from someone by the use of violence or intimidation. And then kidnapping is definitely prohibited. Paul repeats this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. He talks about man-stealing. Well, Deuteronomy 24-7 prohibits stealing men. It prohibits kidnapping under the threat of death. It is a capital crime to deprive somebody of their liberty. It is a capital crime to take somebody away from their home and make them a slave or sell them into slavery. That is a capital offense to steal somebody's liberty away from them. And then the, the, the seventh commandment, or I'm sorry, the eighth commandment, the, do not uh, steal, act, uh, includes the act of fraud. Fraud is a deception deliberately practiced to secure unfair or unlawful gain. Again, as we move our way through this, that's what love looked like in the covenant community. You didn't defraud your neighbor. And there were certain ways you could commit fraud in Old Covenant Israel, the moving of a landmark. Remember that land was central in terms of God's gift to the children of Israel. It was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember when Ahab wants Naboth's vineyard, and he wants him to sell him the vineyard. And what does Naboth say? I'm not going to sell you the, 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 the land. I'm not going to sell you the dirt that God gave to my family. This is something that was given to him by, uh, given to us by him. I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to it for, for dear life. Of course, that's when Ahab says to, to Jezebel, and Jezebel says, hey, you know, my daddy knew how to take care of these things. Let me at it. So she conjures up these charges against Naboth. They stone him to death for blasphemy, and then Ahab co-ops his land. But moving a landmark, the use of unjust weights. It's intriguing how many times in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 11.1, 16.11, 20.10, 20.23, 22, and 23, talks about an unjust scale. God abominates an unjust scale. He abominates deception. He abominates theft. The exploitation of hired workers. You see a bit of that later on. Verse 13, you sh uh, 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 verse 13b, the wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. You don't exploit the worker. You don't put down or, or keep down a man who's, who's engaged in, in gainful employment. You, you pay him. You don't exploit him. As well, you've got the act of extortion, acquiring property by undue legal power or undue influence. In fact, turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 23. This is the way we should understand what, uh, what Jesus is condemning in the woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 23, specifically at verse 14. Verse 14. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Now, probably we read that passage and we say, okay, I, I get what it means that, that, you know, making long prayers for pretense. I mean, Jesus speaks to that in the Sermon on the Mount. You, you don't stand out on the street corner to pray just so everybody can say, what a good prayer he or she is. But what does it mean? You devour widows' houses. Well, the best I can tell is that widows, when their husbands died, would go to these religious leaders for counsel. They would go to these religious leaders for help. You know, how do I sustain, you know, the next 20 years now that my breadwinning husband is in the ground? How am I going to eat? I can't live on love and fresh air. Can, can you help me with whatever pittance I may have left? Well, it was at that time these corrupt men would extort them. It was at this time that these corrupt men would take from them. And then notice in verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of what? Of extortion and self-indulgence. So God condemns that approach to dealing with your fellows. And again, the, 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 the basis of this, the foundation of this is the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. To steal from somebody is to not love them. To steal from somebody is to hate them. To steal from somebody by deception or by extortion or by undue influence upon them is an act of absolute wickedness. But under theft as well, you've got the destruction of property. We've moved our way up to this part in the Pentateuch. So we've gone through the book of Exodus. And this is covered in various places in the book of Exodus. The destruction of property through negligence. And you've got the destruction of property through wickedness. The destruction of property through negligence. If you have an ox that gored and you didn't secure that ox and it broke free and it went and gored your neighbor or it went and destroyed his property, you were criminally liable for that, the, the action of that particular beast. So in 11a, you shall not steal. This is what it looks like in a body politic when people are loving one another. Then notice in the next place, the prohibition of lying. Again, the ninth commandment. The moral law of God is behind all of this. So nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. Now certainly this is the ninth commandment, Exodus 20 and verse 16, Deuteronomy 5 and verse 20. This covers the sin of perjury. In fact, when we look at the, com the commandment, the ninth commandment, do not bear false witness. The first and primary application is in a court of law. Now, this section is going to deal with that in more detail, specifically in verses 15 to 16, but it bears repetition here. The sin of perjury or the crime of perjury is bad. And then, of course, the sin or crime of lying. You're not supposed to do it. And again, Proverbs are filled. We see it all over the New Testament. When persons can't trust one another, society breaks down. When families can't trust one another, society breaks down. And we need to understand that. That's the sort of thing that we're, we're dealing with in our own generation. As well, the sins of backbiting and slander. You're not supposed to engage in that sort of thing. Specifically, notice in verse 16, you shall not go about as a talebearer. I think that's connected very tightly with verse 15 and probably has to do with this person being a witness in a criminal court. But the, the principle is there. We're not to be talebearers. We're not to be gossips. We're not to be those who engage in what the New Testament calls whispering. So gossip and talebearing are condemned by God here in Leviticus chapter 19. 
So again, when we come to this, you know, the whole question of God's law, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you, the, uh, or the contrast is not Jesus and Moses, it's Jesus and bad interpreters of Moses. Moses always spoke to the heart because it's God speaking through Moses to the heart. You couldn't hate your neighbor in your heart in the old covenant any more than you can in the new covenant. You couldn't lust after your neighbor in your heart in the old covenant any more than you can in the new covenant. So Jesus is not saying, I've got you know, a better law than what Moses has. No, the, the contrast is between scribal and Pharisaic misinterpretation that focus simply upon the external. As long as you don't actually stop someone's heart from beating, you've fulfilled the sixth commandment. As long as you haven't physically gone into your neighbor's wife, you've fulfilled the seventh commandment. Jesus says, no, it's always been this way. And we see it here in, in, in very sharp detail in Leviticus chapter 19. And then as well, we've got the misuse of God's name in verse 12. You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. This, of course, being the third commandment. Now, it's Exodus 20, verse 7, and Deuteronomy 5, verse 11. So blasphemy. Blasphemy is a capital offense in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 24. You are not supposed to blaspheme the name of God most high. And for good reason. That's his name. It's his sacred name, and he commands it. But as well, when you live in a community that is a theocracy and the highest standard in that theocratic nation is God, to engage in such an activity is sedition. It's treason of the highest order. And so that threat must be neutralized, and it is done so through stoning death. As well, the unlawful use of oaths and vows. Deuteronomy 6.13, Deuteronomy 10.20. We're to swear by God's name in matters of import. When Jesus talks about not swearing in the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about your day in, day in, or day in, day out sort of situations. You don't have to swear on a stack of Bibles that you'll be home at three. You don't have to swear on a stack of Bibles, ladies, that the, the roast will be ready at five. You don't have to swear on a stack of Bibles that you're going to... No, no. For everyday life affairs, your yes is yes and your no is no. But in matters of weight and importance, the oath or the vow is absolutely crucial. It's an act of, uh, of worship according, the, uh, according to Scripture. So we're not to swear falsely by the, uh, by the name of God. As well, the use of magic or sorcery. That's a condemnation and a breach of the third commandment. And of course, magic and sorcery is condemned specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 18, but you see it all throughout the Old Testament. You see this emphasis on Israel being separate from the nations around them. That's the emphasis in Deuteronomy 18. You're a, 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 a particular people. You're not supposed to go after soothsayers or necromancers. You're not supposed to engage in the witchcraft or the, the paganism that obtains all around you, but rather you've got prophets that speak the word and you've got priests that come to me in terms of intercession. So you're not supposed to be like the nations around you. Now, magic or sorcery typically invokes the name of a god or some higher power to try to appeal to people to get what you want. And so God says, don't do that. And then the misapplication of God's providence. Westminster Larger Catechism, under the commandment, the third commandment, says murmuring and quarreling at, curious prying into and misapplying God's decrees and providences. 
I doubt we ever think of the third commandment in that regard, but I think that's a lawful or a legitimate application. And then, of course, the misinterpretation of God's word, maintaining false doctrine. That's bad. Heresy is condemned by God. We saw it on Sunday morning, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul doesn't say, well, you know, they're just a little bit off. You know, give them their, you know, give them their opportunity. Let them have a Thursday night so they can peddle their heresy. No, the apostle Paul says these are, 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 are wretched men. In 2 Timothy chapter, uh, 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 I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 4, he talks about doctrines of demons. Well, what are the doctrines of demons? Are they conjuring up the devil? Are they sacrificing children? There it's forbidding marriage and forbidding to eat meat that God gave to be enjoyed by his creatures. Paul says this is bad. Don't, don't have truck with heretics. And then notice next in verses 13 and 14, the prohibition of exploitation. Verse 13, you shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. Again, that's not loving, right? Cheating your, oh boy, I really got one over on him. That's not a, a statement of love. I'm not saying you can't get a good deal, negotiate your terms and all that sort of thing. But, but if you crush your opponent and you clobber him or you cheat him and you step all over him, that's not a good thing. So the prohibition against cheating or robbing your neighbor, and then there's two specific examples of this. Notice in 13b, the wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. This isn't the only place this is stated. It's in Deuteronomy 24, uh, verse 15 as well. You got a day laborer, day laborer, a laborer. Give him his wages. Give him what he has done. Don't hold back those things because the man depends upon it in order to live. You're not supposed to step on your fellows to try to make it in life. And then notice the abuse of neighbors and their weak neighbors among you. Notice, you shall not curse the deaf nor put a stumbling block before the Lord. Don't do those things that take advantage of others. Again, I'm not suggesting you're the one that always gets walked over by everybody. I'm not suggesting that you don't engage in fair trade and that sort of thing, but you don't try to crush people. You don't try to step on people and you sure, certainly don't find their weakness and then exploit their weaknesses. That, that's not love. That's not kindness. That's not reflective of the God who has saved us by his grace and for his glory. So this whole idea of not cursing the deaf, not putting a stumbling block before the Lord, but rather fear God, I am the Lord. And then notice in verses 15 and 16, the prohibition of a corrupt court. Well, probably for most of us, unless you happen to work in the court or you're a professional criminal, these sorts of things don't usually apply to us. We don't think a lot about criminal court. We really should think a lot more about criminal court. We really should think about the fact that when there is a two-tier justice system in any body politic, it crushes the morale of persons under that. This is not a good thing. When you see some people get away with murder and you see some people crushed by governing authorities for things that don't deserve that crushing. God speaks often to the judiciary. And notice he does so here in verses 15 and 16. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall do no injustice in judgment. 
You know, we've got that Lady Liberty, she's holding the scales, her, she's got a blindfold on. Well, why is that? Because she's not supposed to be partial. She's not supposed to go, oh, well, that guy's poor, we're going to give him a break in the court. Or that guy's rich, so we're going to give him a break in the court. No, she's blind. She's got her eyes covered so that she doesn't rule based on any appearances. She doesn't rule based on anything other than the evidence that is presented. That's the, the, the mandate of God Almighty. You shall do no injustice in judgment. And then notice, you shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. See, God's word is specific. These are the two tendencies that you might find in a corrupt judge. You might find a corrupt judge, and well, you know, the guy's poor. I can kind of understand why he did what he did. You're not supposed to understand why he did what he did. You're supposed to render a verdict based on what he did. There's a big difference there. We don't want touchy-feely judges that are letting horrible people go because they're poor. But by the same token, we don't want touchy-feeling judges or judges partial to bribes. They're going to let rich people go because they might get their beak wet. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. Again, notice how God just assumes this. And we saw this, I think, way back in Exodus chapter 24. When Moses goes up on the mountain once again to see God, God has him provide men who are able to adjudicate cases while Moses is absent. What does that mean? God knows us well. Even when you know, our leaders are away, we're still going to fight. We're still going to argue. We're still going to engage in criminal activity. We're still going to need adjudication. God takes judges and courts and witnesses and testimony and laws of evidence and due process. He takes all that very, very seriously. And it says, in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. Again, I think verse 16, there's a general prohibition. Keep your big mouth shut. Don't go about as a talebearer among your people. But because it's wedged in between verse 15 and verse 16b, I think it's probably a witness. I think it's probably who's got, somebody who's got a big mouth and is talking about a particular case. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. See, again, my gossip on a regular basis doesn't usually take the life or endanger the life of my neighbor, but my false testimony does, my talebearing, my giving false evidence, or my stretching the facts in a given case. So I think 15 and 16 go together as a particular unit to underscore and highlight what it is God de uh, demands in terms of a properly functioning court. Look at uh, uh, Deuteronomy for just a moment. Again, we could go back to Exodus, but look at Deuteronomy. Just a couple of passages. Because I don't think we, at least not, not you guys, maybe, I need to think more about this. Sometimes I see these bumper stickers around town. I've seen a billboard on the way to, to the city or on the, on the freeway. I think it's around Langley, you know, something about judges. Judges are very important. If we don't have good judges, we're going to be in a mess. And brethren, I don't think we have good judges based on my experience with the, criminal, or with the, the courts during COVID. But back to Deuteronomy. Notice in uh, chapter 17 specifically. I'm sorry, chapter 17, yes. Yeah, chapter 17, we've got the laws of witnesses. Notice specifically at cha uh, uh, chapter 17, verse 
Verse 2, if there is found among you within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, a man or woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, who has gone and served other gods and worshiped them, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed that wicked thing and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. No, so you don't just do this willy-nilly. You examine, you investigate, you inquire. But then notice the stipulation was whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death and afterward the hands of all the people. So you shall put away the evil from among you. What do you think that does to a people? What do you think it does when the witnesses are the first to take up the stones to throw at the guilty party? Hopefully it instills a bit of fear in them because this is a very grave matter. This is what I think Jesus has in mind when he says, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. In other words, if you are the morally pure, upright people you say that you are, go ahead, pick up a stone and throw it at this woman who was caught in the act of adultery in the very act. He's got this in his mindset, the the gravity of being a witness in a condition where you are throwing stones to kill your fellow. Remember, these aren't, this isn't Los Angeles. This isn't Vancouver. We're not talking about millions of people. These are people you see on the way to the, the store. These are people that you go to the watering hole with. These are people that you know intimately. So I think the witness testimony and the witness throwing stones was to underscore the gravity involved. In other words, you don't just sort of make up these offenses. And then notice in verses 8 to 13, this is the function of the higher court. If a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge between degrees of guilt for bloodshed, between one judgment or another, or between one punishment or another, matters of controversy within your gates, then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. So there's this mechanism in place to adjudicate those things that were too difficult for for persons at a lower level. And then notice over in Deuteronomy chapter 19, specifically at verse 15. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother, so you shall put away the evil from among you. Do you understand that principle? If I allege that Isaac is guilty of a capital crime and I take him before the judges and I can't prove my case, I'm going to be executed. What do you think that's going to do to me before I take Isaac to the judge? I'm going to have to really ponder the implications. Do I have a case? Do I have a good case? Do I have a good enough case so that Isaac will be found guilty and be executed? Because if not, I'm going to be found guilty and I'm going to be executed. See, we look at Old Covenant law and we say, oh, it's so barbaric, stoning and killing and all that sort of thing. 
Listen to the due process. Listen to the things that are built in to, to serve, serve as checks and balances. Verse 20, those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. You shall not pity. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Again, that's a principle everybody cries about. Oh, well, that's terrible. It simply means the punishment must fit the crime. That's all that principle is. The punishment must fit the crime. When he says uh, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, everything built in terms of civil jurisprudence is on that principle. The punishment must fit the crime. That's what that principle is. Turn over to the book of Proverbs, two texts, and then we'll move on. Proverbs chapter 18. Now, this is not only profitable for the civil court, this is very helpful for the life of the local church. Proverbs 18, two principles there concerning due process that all of us should keep in our minds and in our hearts. Notice in Proverbs 18, 13, he who, hear, hear, uh, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. <laughs> How many times do we, oh, that's terrible. David does that, doesn't he? When he hears the parable of Nathan, that man deserves to die. You're the man, David. Oh, should have thought that one through. He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. Brethren, you're not omniscient. I'm not omniscient. We're not infallible people. We can't give answers to, to complicated situations based on you know, that much information. And then notice in verse 17, the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. That's the principle of cross-examination. If we don't have that, we don't have a justice system. Because you hear the facts stated by one man, oh yeah, the other man is guilty. He is terrible. He is horrible. Let's do away with him. And then he comes and he's able to give credible evidence that suggests the other guy is lying or suggests the other guy is faulty. There are principles in Scripture that we, 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 we dispense with to our, our, our destruction, and we are witnessing that in our current situation. And then head back to Leviticus chapter 19. The next section, the prohibition against hatred, this is the sixth under the other community laws in verses 11 to 18. So theft, lying, God's name, exploitation, corrupt court, and now hatred. Notice in verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. So again, Jesus isn't elevating the commandment. Jesus isn't saying, well, I'm giving you a new, a new extra special spiritual commandment. No, this was always stipulated in the law. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Don't do it. You're not supposed to do that. You don't have to be his BFF. You don't have to be his closest buddy. You don't have to be his Facebook friend. But you're not supposed to hate him in your heart. That's just contrary to God's law. It's contrary to God's will. It's contrary to your life as a new man in Christ Jesus. Now notice the next section. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. What does that mean? Well, I think this idea of rebuking him... I think it's twofold. One, for uh, in a general sense. Rebuke him for sin in general. Notice, you shall surely rebuke your neighbor. If you see him going astray, it's an act of love to try to capture him, to keep him from going astray, right? Isn't it loving if you see somebody about to walk off a cliff to say, you know what? You're going to walk off a cliff and grab him by the shirt and pull on him. 
You rebuke him in general so, so that he doesn't continue in this path. But I think the specific application is there as well. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. Now, rebuke him for his sin against you. Because if you don't rebuke him for his sin against you, then you're going to hate him in your heart. Does that make sense? Well, I don't want to make a big deal out of it. So I'm just going to avoid that person and never look at him again. That's not biblical conduct, brethren. It is not biblical to say, well, I don't want to have any kind of a problem or any kind of a controversy, so I'll just avoid this person and never have dealings with them again. To change your attitude or action? No, no, it's better to rebuke them. Look, you sinned against me. You did wrong. You, you should repent. Oh, yeah, wow, please forgive me. Okay, what happens? You mend the relationship. It's done. It's over. As a blood-bought child of God, is there somebody in, in your life that you wouldn't forgive? I mean, even if they did, 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 even if they did some pretty horrible, of course we're going to forgive. Doesn't Paul tell us? Forgive even as God and Christ forgave you? Of course, yeah, we, we forgive. That's, that's what we do. So, so this, you shall surely rebuke your neighbor. Yeah, generally, so you can stop him from doing his foolishness, but not bear sin because of it. Rebuke him for the things he's done to you. And again, two places in Scripture in the New Testament highlight this. You can turn to the, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 5. We, we have two strategies in the book of Matthew on how to deal with sin. And there's only two strategies that we need. Because when it comes to sin, either I sin against somebody or they sin against me. Right? I mean, that's pretty much it. That, that exhausts the, the breach in interpersonal relations. You've got two people. There's only one of two things. I mean, I guess they can both sin against each other, but indulge me for a moment. The, the two things that we're going to have problems with is either I sin against person B or he sins against me. Boy, it would be great if Jesus spoke to that. Well, he does. Notice in Matthew chapter 5, specifically at verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift. Now, this is in the context. Go back to verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. So, so it's a sixth commandment. This, this, this prohibition against hating people is a sixth commandment violation. Hatred of another is uh, a desire at, at some level to, to rid the world of them. And so I think that it's connected to the Sixth Commandment. So Jesus deals with various things relative to the Sixth Commandment in a more sort of inward situation. He's not saying, you know, don't go to the store, buy a gun, and shoot your neighbor in the head. Obviously, that's condemned. That's prohibited. Don't misunderstand me. Don't do that. But he's dealing with the heart sins. And verse 23, if you remember, or you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. So, so there you are, you're at the altar, you're about to present your gift, vertically worshiping God, but, but you remember, man, I, I sinned against my brother. I got to go fix my horizontal relationship or God's not going to have any, you know, acceptance of my vertical offering, right? 
Does that ever happen? You come to church and you think, man, I, I got to deal with some sin here. I got to confess these things. But, you know, you scream at your kid on the way. Not that I'm speaking by way of experience, but by any stretch, you scream at your kid on the way to church. It's probably good in the parking lot to, to make good on that. Please forgive me, son or daughter. My son's looking at me like, oh, I remember those times well, Dad. <laughs> but but we, we have to fix things. The, the vertical is affected by the horizontal. So notice, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So if I sin against somebody and I remember that, I need to go seek to fix it. Conversely, if somebody sins against me, do I just wait till they come and fix it? No. Matthew 18, verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. See, the onus and responsibility is upon you. You can't just wait for everybody else to deal with their sins or to deal with your sins. Jesus puts the onus upon us to deal. And I think that's what Deuteronomy, uh, Leviticus 19, 17 is about. And then notice in verse 18, to finalize the chapter, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. Now that statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord, summarizes the second table of the law. Remember in Matthew 22, Jesus is asked, which is the first and foremost commandment? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That summarizes the first table of the law. And then he says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That summarizes the second table. Now, a summary is only good as long as that which it's summarizing is binding upon us. And so the, the law of God, in terms of its uh, expression in the Ten Commandments, our duty to God and our duty to man. We've got the abiding perpetuity of moral law. We see Jesus and the apostles uphold it. We see that Jesus in the gospel says that he did not come to destroy or abolish, but rather to fulfill it, to confirm it. And we see by his life and practice and by his apostles that they maintain an emphasis on that law as a normative pattern for sanctification in the life of God's people. Well, let us pray, and if there's any questions, we can deal with those. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the consistency that we find between the covenants. Thank you as well for that moral law given initially in the garden and then summarized at Sinai. We see it upheld in the new covenant as well. We thank you that we're not justified by law, for that could never be. We're justified freely by grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that he then prays to sanctify us by your truth. Your, your word is truth. And we find that, that revelation of law as a pattern for us to follow. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you that there is forgiveness with you when we do fall, when we do stumble, when we do, uh, in some sense, leave the God that we love. We pray that you would go with us now, and we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Any questions or comments? And one comment is that as we go through this in our justice system, we, our nation rejects the Judeo-Christian values it's so apparent today that we're not seeing justice being done in our court system. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it's, yeah, it's not hard to miss. Yeah. The sad thing, Jim, is that our society um, doesn't really know what justice looks like. Either. 
I think that's the, that's the terrifying thing. Mm -hmm. So these men don't be held accountable because people don't even know what it looks like anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, and I think it is demoralizing for sure when you see two systems or two two different approaches. It really, you, you don't feel like there's a fair shake. It's a, it's a, a rigged deck. Yeah. I definitely like that. All right. Good. Thanks, Jim. All right. I didn't get to be